Welcome to the podcast of the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's famous radical bookshop. To find out more about the bookshop and how you can get involved and support us, go to nibs.org.au. This is our first episode of what we hope will be a regular series, mainly featuring recorded talks at the bookshop located at the Trades Hall in Melbourne. First up, we have a former Australian Army officer and now Professor of International Politics at UNSW, Clinton Fernandez. In this talk, Clinton discusses the background to the prosecution of Canberra lawyer Bernard Kalari and his client, a former officer of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ACES, known only as Witness K. The charges relate to revelations that the Australian government spied on the government of East Timor during oil and gas treaty negotiations in 2004. The talk is based on a chapter in Clinton's new book, which we have for sale in the bookshop, called Islands Off the Coast of Asia, Instruments of Statecraft in Australian Foreign Policy. Here is Clinton. All right, uh, before uh, I start, I'll just, uh, since uh, he's just started with an ad, I'll start with an ad as well. I'm uh, really pleased to see that one of my favourite musicians of all time, the great David Hosking himself, is in the audience. Uh, look him up, get his CDs, uh, wonderful Australian voice. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, I listened to a lot of your music while I was doing this, uh, this book. Um, okay, so um, hard to know where to start, really, uh, given that there are so many different uh, uh, aspects of this case uh, and the story in play. Uh, for those wanting the most comprehensive, detailed, uh, you know, the best case that I could make, um, it's in Chapter 7 of the book. Okay, so if you, you want all the evidence and everything else, just have a look at that. Um, let's just uh, start with uh, something that happens on the 9th of September 2004. Okay, on the 9th of September 2004, uh, a car bomb goes off outside the Australian Embassy in Jakarta. Um, there are several people killed, including an Indonesian policeman, several people standing in line for their visas. Um, and that uh, car bomb uh, happens at uh, the same time as something else is going on elsewhere in the archipelago to our north. Uh, at the same time as the car bomb is going off, uh, an espionage operation is underway in East Timor. And uh, it's the contrast between uh, those two elements that I think uh, I'll frame the talk on. Um, the, um, the uh, early 2000s was uh, part of the decade of terror. Uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, had uh, raised the terrorist threat. Um, the Bali bombings of 12th of October 2002 um, uh, put Islamic terrorism um, on, the, on the agenda. Uh, in about July 2004, uh, there was a white paper on counterterrorism issued by the Howard government. Um, and in that white paper, uh, the words um, extremist Islamist terror uh, were mentioned more than 100 times and Indonesia was said to be a focus more than 50 times in the space of that 100-page white paper. So it was very clear uh, that the government uh, was, at least in its, in its rhetoric, was identifying uh, the key focus of uh, policy and intelligence um, and so on as extremist Islamist terror um, in the Indonesian archipelago. Uh, and yet, uh, the focus of ACES, uh, or the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, uh, was not uh, on extremist Islamic terror in the uh, Indonesian archipelago, 
but on a country that's about 95% Catholic with no known Islamic uh, terrorist groups, namely East Timor. Um, and so um, uh, it, it, I think the, the instruments of statecraft are varied. Uh, there's diplomacy, which is what diplomats do. There's tradecraft. Uh, um, there's uh, tr you know, trade agreements. Um, there's monetary policy. There are things that are overt, but there are things that are covert, and they both try and achieve the same thing. Um, and usually what's happening below the surface, uh, below the waterline, uh, whether that's literally below the waterline, namely submarine operations or intelligence operations, uh, are hidden from public view. And you sometimes find out about them 30 years later, sometimes you don't. But in this case, uh, we have a very clear picture that emerges uh, because there was grave uh, disquiet within the Australian Secret Intelligence Service at the diversion of uh, scarce resources away from the war on terror into the targeting of the Timorese high the senior leadership uh, during oil and gas negotiations uh, between Australia and Indonesia, uh, and, and East Timor, sorry. Um, now, I will talk a little bit about the people who are facing trial, but I just want to put it in some perspective. Um, the uh, support for uh, oil companies is long running in Australian foreign policy. Um, and it's taken uh, certain forms that most people are simply not aware of. Okay? I've traced that in the, in the book, in Chapter 7. Uh, in uh, the 1950s, nobody knew what actually lay under the waterline. If you go to the coastline anywhere on our continent and you try and figure out what's there, it just looks like a sea, you don't really know what's underneath it. Um, and so um, the Bureau of Mineral Resources, uh, today called Geoscience Australia, conducted a comprehensive survey of the, the, uh, the prolongation uh, of the coastline under the water, that's called the continental shelf. Um, it uh, involved the following process. A ship would leave Port Melbourne. It would go off to a predetermined point um, on, onto, uh, into the water, turn left 20 nautical miles and come back. And it would do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week for years mapping the entire uh, continental shelf, the margin outside, uh, you know, around the coast. It trailed behind it a, a proton precession magnetometer that would work out uh, what's the iron content underneath the water. There was a, a, a device to measure uh, the gravitational field of the Earth under the waterline. If the Earth is not solid, it's uh, got a solid crust, but it's got a molten core. Um, and it's, the mass is not distributed evenly. So if you can map the gravitational field, you can work out what's underneath the waterline, okay, because different objects have different gravitational um, forces. Um, there was a, uh, a winch, a coring and dredging winch, uh, with a 20-ton braking strength that was 10 kilometers long, and it would scrape the seabed. So it was 10 kilometers deep, it would scrape the seabed, collect sediments, and on a three decks of a ship, this is all happening 24 hours a day, three decks of a ship, there'd be real-time tests to work out what exactly is under the waterline. Okay? There was, um, uh, if it's, if it's oceanic crust, um, that tends to be basaltic, uh, which is a combination of uh, rocks that are rich in silica and magnesium. If it's coming in from the, from the uh, rivers, uh, dropping it onto the, uh, into the ocean floor, um, that's uh, granitic, which means it's rich in silica and alumina. So all of that has to be worked out. Okay, and after more than a decade, all at public expense, uh, the um, Bureau of Mineral Resources, today called Geoscience Australia, uh, went from knowing nothing about what 
Australia looked like under the waterline, to having a very clear picture of uh, exactly uh, where the troughs were, where the uh, uh, where the crevices were, the, the cre uh, crevices were uh, what it looks like if there's kelp uh, in, trapped in the rocks, that's a possible predictor uh, of uh, liquefied natural gas trapped there. Um, and so all of this was done at public expense. Now, it's not secret in the sense that it was announced in the budget. Okay? But you have to be kind of reading the Journal of the Bureau of Mineral Resources and all their findings to work out this is actually going on. Uh, so this begins in December uh, 1970. Um, and it's happening at the same time as Australia is negotiating uh, the Law of the Sea Convention uh, with all the other countries of the world, um, you know, between 73 and uh, 82. So it begins in December 1970, and they know the Law of the Sea Convention is coming on. And so the geoscience is feeding into uh, the negotiators secretly. Okay. So, for example, the negotiators say, well, that country has proposed that uh, um, a ridgeline under the water should be defined in a particular way, because it's not exactly clear where something starts and when it ends. And so they would go and run tests, say, for example, in, in, in the Macquarie Ridge, which is near Macquarie Island, uh, that is uh, uh, in the southwest Pacific, think below New Zealand and, and above Antarctica, so it's in the middle of that. Okay? And they said, well, if you, define, uh, if you define the continental shelf in the Law of the Sea Convention like this, then we lose half the ridge. But if you define it in some other way, then we gain all the ridge. And so they went through the entire, all, all the seven sub-Antarctic islands, all the geoscience data, and they ensured that Australia got the best possible uh, definition of the continental shelf, which is uh, explained in Article 76 of the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, I won't go into the technicalities of that, it's in the book. And so then what happens? They say, well, um, we've got all this geoscientific information, we've got uh, a very broad continental shelf uh, in the northwest. Okay, it's quite shallow and it just slopes gently for about 350 nautical miles off the coast of Broome, Karatha, Karanara, all those other places. It just keeps going, Barrow Island. Uh, there's not much of a continental shelf on the east coast of Australia, okay, but there is a long continental shelf, a broad margin on the northwest shelf. Um, so they have all this information, all this geoscientific inf uh, information, um, and other countries do too, you know, advanced, um, industrial countries like Norway, for example, which uh, is quite interested in its oil in the North Sea um, and has interest in something called the Svalbard, which is up in near, the, near the poles. Um, so the, Norway has its own oil company. Okay, it's called Statoil. We don't have our own oil company. So what the federal cabinet did, this is now we're into the, uh, the period of the, uh, the Labour government, okay, of the uh, mid-1980s. Uh, it takes all this geoscientific data and it hands it across to the oil companies. Doesn't charge them very much, less than 5% of what it cost. Okay. They take this data, and, and the surveys continue till 2002, because it takes a while. And I want to emphasize what I mean by that. Australia's um, land area is 7.69 million square kilometers. That's how big we are. Okay. We've got more exclusive economic zone under the water than we have on land. We've got 12 million square kilometers uh, under the water. Okay, most people would not realize that in fact Australia has more land under the water than we have land on land. Okay, and all of that has to be mapped. Okay, how big is 12 million square kilometers? Well, you know, Victoria is 220,000 square kilometers. Okay, so that's how big it is. Um, and so uh, Australia is 7.69 million square kilometers. So they map all that. Uh, the Northwest Shelf Project is formed around November 1984. 
Uh, it's an investment, a private investment of $27 billion, uh, inaugurated by former Premier Brian Burke of Western Australia. Uh, it's a coalition of, uh, of companies led by Woodside Petroleum. What they do is they take all this geoscientific data, they go off to the Northwest Shelf knowing where the, the gas is, drill the hole, up comes the gas. And it results in the biggest single export contract ever signed by anybody for anything in Australian history. It's a $25 billion contract uh, to sell uh, gas to uh, Guangdong province of China uh, in 2002. Five years later, the same, the same uh, coalition uh, you know, consortium uh, has an even bigger contract, $45 billion once again to China. And it's bottomless. Now it's $68 billion. There's more. It's just, if I had a... Uh, if I had a, um, a, a light pro, I'd have shown you exactly where the oil fields are. Now, all of that has been done uh, at public expense. So if we were to take, for example, the standard capitalist principle, that if you take the risk, you bear the cost, you should get the profit, um, then in fact, uh, the profit should go to us. Um, but we don't have a capitalist system. Uh, we, have, we, we don't. Um, I just fail to see, I'm not even presenting what I'm saying as caricature or irony. Um, in fact, what we have is a system where the shareholders of Woodside and uh, the other uh, uh, members of the uh, consortium uh, benefit disproportionately uh, from the profits. So how much did we get? Uh, well, from November 84 to December 2017, uh, based on Northwest Shelf Project and Woodside's own data, um, the taxpayer received through taxes, excise and royalties all sources, $26 billion. Okay, so that's, the that's what we got. Uh, by contrast, uh, Norway got about $1.2 trillion. Uh, admittedly, they have perhaps more oil, but we have still got a lot more to get. Um, and Norway put its uh, oil money into its petroleum fund. It created a petroleum fund. Uh, the petroleum fund has uh, employees on the board of directors. Its decisions are made open to the public. Um, and. Um, uh, Norway has a population of about 6 million, okay, so uh, uh, they've got 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars in the petroleum fund. Uh, we've received about 26 billion dollars from all sources from that entire Northwest Shelf project. Uh, and um, none of this information was particularly secret, it just had to be pulled together to actually work out where it is. Um, now, this is the context in which I think we should see the government's support for a particular company, in this case Woodside, uh, in the dispute with East Timor, uh, with the espionage against Timor, uh, and the trial, the upcoming trial of Bernard Collary and Witness K. It's not enough to just look at this particular trial, but to see it in the broader context of massive state, state subsidy for the private sector. Okay, so what exactly happens? Well, in uh, May 2002, Timor is supposed to become an independent state. Uh, the Indonesians have left, uh, or at least Australia arrives, on the 20th of September, 99. And this year, 20th September, is 20 years. Uh, those of you who are involved in any way with Timor should be prepared for an onslaught of, uh, of uh, backslapping uh, propaganda about how wonderful everything has been. Um, so 20th September, 99, uh, Australia arrives. Shortly thereafter, the Indonesian forces begin to leave, and they, in fact, do leave. Um, but May 2002, Timor is supposed to become independent. Now, three months beforehand, Timor receives uh, a legal opinion commissioned by a deceased friend of mine, uh, Andrew McNaughton, by three leading uh, international maritime law experts. And it shows that if international law were to apply, uh, then Timor would get 
uh, a maritime border halfway between Australia and us, Australia and East Timor, um, Australia and them. Um, and um, this legal opinion was circulating in Dili uh, at the time. Uh, and so knowing about this, uh, it came to the, I know it came to the attention of the, uh, the Australian government through our embassy there. Uh, and so in March 2002, three months before Timor was, became independent, uh, and therefore had an independent legal personality, um, uh, Alexander Downer as foreign minister withdrew from the jurisdiction of the uh, maritime section of the International Court of Justice. Okay, you're allowed to do that. If you're a state, you can say, well, I don't accept the treaty in respect of this. Um, and so the International Court of Justice, one of the uh, uh, organs of the, the Supreme Judicial Organ of the United Nations, um, if Timor had taken us to that, uh, to that court, the World Court as it's known, uh, it um, would have gotten a fair deal, would have gotten its, its rights under international law, but because it couldn't, uh, since we'd withdrawn from the, the maritime uh, jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, um, Timor uh, had no ability to enforce its rights. Um, and it also had no money. Uh, because uh, you know you, it doesn't really have any money. Like it, it's money's uh, comes from the oil, um, and so um, uh, there was a, a lot of arm twisting to force Timor to sign these treaties. Um, and by April 2004, it became pretty clear to the foreign minister uh, that uh, there was not going to be uh, a complete surrender by the Timorese. They were only going to to agree to certain things because they really had no money, but they weren't prepared to sign away all their rights uh, once and for all, which is what they were required to do. Uh, there's a very important gas field uh, called Greater uh, called Sunrise and Troubadour. Together they're called Greater Sunrise, and so Timor wanted a chance to get its hands on that, but Australia also wanted to get its hands on that. Uh, so April 2004, uh, talks finally stall, and it looks like uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, according to information that has since become public and uh, has been covered by Senator Rex Patrick in Parliament under parliamentary privilege, uh, which is why I'm able to speak about it freely so long as I stick to uh, the script. Um, according to the information that's become public, um, uh, Alexander Downer is alleged to have ordered the, uh, the, the bugging of the Timorese uh, cabinet officers in order to uh, uh, work out exactly what they needed to offer them or what would work uh, to make them sign the treaty. Um, and uh, according to, now this is an educated guess, by around July 2004, the, uh, the bugs were in place. Um, uh, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service uh, was told, focus on Timor. This is, and bear in mind, by this time, the counterterrorism white paper uh, has been published. Uh, extremist Islamist uh, terrorism in the Indonesian archipelago is a focus. Uh, but ACES has been told, no, what we want you to do is uh, go and spy on the Timorese. So they used the cover of an aid program, an AusAid program, to refurbish the uh, uh, cabinet offices. Um, and they go in and they bug uh, certain offices. And I'll explain which ones in a second. Um, now, there's a, th there's a certain sort of irony about this because uh, there was grave disquiet within ACES itself. Those guys simply couldn't work out why they were being told to go and do this, because it seemed pretty clear that there was a commercial element to it, um, and I guess they're not used to it, uh, not, not some of the, the older people who remember the Cold War and other kinds of things. Um, there are talks scheduled for September 2004 and October 2004, and uh, the normal pattern is that they meet in the negotiating rooms, both sides, 
And then in the breaks, they break away and the Australian side goes back to the embassy and the Timorese side, its negotiators go to the cabinet offices and briefs their cabinet on what's just happened. And they keep doing that. This goes on for a few days, uh, up to a week in September, and then some more in September, and then after that in October again. Uh, and so um, uh, the rooms into which the Timorese team retires to brief uh, the rest of their cabinet are the ones that are bugged. Uh, and it, I just want to say that it's not simply like putting an iPhone in front of me or uh, the friendly guy working for ASIO there just micing me up and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, videotaping. No, uh, you have to measure the geometry of a room. Okay, you've got to have these bugs in for weeks to months. They have energy requirements. They're not, uh, they're not just going to stay in there transmitting indefinitely. You don't know when, when you might have to how long you might need them for. So you need, the, you need to work out the, uh, the geometry of the room, you need to work out uh, where to place them, uh, how can they be refurbished. It takes a while. It's, it's an expert job and it's not plug and play. Okay, so when the, uh, uh, the police uh, technical operations guys bug drug dealers, it's pretty much pre-purchased gear. It's plug and play. Uh, but this is special. This is uh, done by the Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, ACES Tech Ops is, is different. So it was an enormous diversion of resources uh, to go in there to pretend to be uh, people who are refurbishing uh, the uh, uh, cabinet offices and then to actually have to do it. You actually have to really refurbish the cabinet offices. Um, that takes effort and you can't just get somebody to do it. Uh, you know, they have to be trusted people. So then once again, it's uh, you know, human resources or manpower intensive uh, act uh, to go and do this. So. Uh, um, the way, it the, way the, uh, the operation worked was um, the bugs were placed uh, inside uh, the walls uh, of the, um, of the uh, uh, cabinet offices and they, were, they would transmit a microwave signal of what was being said in the room. They would transmit via a line of sight transmission uh, to a floating hotel that was uh, moored on the wharf. Uh, about 75 to 80 percent of Timor, of Dili, the capital, had been burned down by the Indonesians. When they left, uh, people who don't remember it or don't know what it was about uh, will find it hard to, to understand. So let me explain. Yeah, drain pipes pulled up, copper wires pulled up, buildings destroyed, things burnt, uh, nothing's left standing. Um, and so when the international community, the aid commu community comes in uh, to refurbish the place uh, or rebuild, reconstruct, whatever, uh, uh, they need accommodation. And the accommodation is a, a hotel that's actually a ship with rooms in it. And it just, it's off, it, there's, a, there's a ramp, you get, get on the wharf, you walk up the ramp, you get on your ship, that's where you sleep for the night, and you can stay there for like six months, three months, whatever. Uh, so the uh, ACES team uh, took over uh, the front-facing rooms as a command post, which is where the listening element of the transmission uh, would uh, be beamed to, um, listen into all of that, and then couriered the... Um, couriered the uh, uh, transcripts across, or the, the audio across to the Australian Embassy uh, in Dili, across town, and from there straight uh, by a secure link uh, to Canberra uh, to work so that uh, the people back in, in DFAT uh, and ASUS could work out exactly what needs to be offered to the Timorese in order to, uh, uh, to make it happen. So this, st this stuff has, uh, uh, you know, despite uh, the authorities' best efforts, um, the precise tactics uh, uh, have become, uh, become known. Um, what isn't known, thankfully, 
um, and will not be known, uh, is the identity of uh, uh, any of the people in there. Okay. Uh, one person who is going to be tried, I'm going to talk about in a second, his, um, he is called Witness K. So he is said to be the former, or at the time he was, the director of all technical operations for ACES. Okay, so he's not some low-level guy who you know, pretends to service your, uh, your uh, photocopy machine in order to steal the, um, the carbon uh, cylinder, uh, which is what they usually do to, to work out what's been photocopied in it. Yeah, they get jobs working for Toshiba and places like that. Uh, I, these are indicative rather than Toshiba. These are just indicative. Uh, uh, you know, uh, so, but we're not talking about someone like that. We're talking about the head of all technical operations for ASUS. That is somebody who knows where all the bugs are everywhere. Okay, for all operations. Uh, one of the most trusted people uh, in the Australian intelligence community. Um, he's said to have had grave misgivings about it. He couldn't work out why uh, this was going on. He began asking too many questions. Uh, and so he was told, we are having a new culture within ACES, we need to have generational change, uh, and so uh, uh, you're not going to have uh, uh, your position anymore. We have to make some restructuring inside ACES, and so he was let go. Um, nothing much happened after he was let go. Okay? He didn't really do anything, although he was, of course, dissatisfied. Uh, but then, uh, one year later, uh, just after Timor finally did sign a treaty, after the bugging in September and October 2004, uh, soon after, early in the next year, um, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, Ashton Calvert, uh, resigned from the department, from the position as secretary, and joined the board of directors of Woodside Petroleum. Um, and um, um, that obviously led to even more consternation within ACES and uh, elsewhere, but not within DFAT, where such arrangements are actually quite common. Um, and if you look at, I've, I've traced the careers of a few people in the book uh, using things like their last known position at, at uh, DFAT and then their LinkedIn profiles. And you see what appears to be a revolving door um, between um, uh, certain oil companies, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, project management, and now corporate affairs for those same oil companies. So there's a revolving door. Um, it's less common with an ACES, apparently. So. Um, um, November 2007, uh, Kevin Rudd becomes Prime Minister uh, and uh, Howard loses his seat. Uh, Alexander Downer is no longer Foreign Minister and uh, so he's out of Parliament. Uh, he retains his seat but he doesn't want to be in Parliament anymore so he leaves. And his first position he takes up is a lucrative consultancy with Woodside Petroleum. And so that really uh, uh, got Witness K's uh, goat. Uh, and he began uh, a complaint process. So this is all, he's not a, a whistleblower in the sense that people think of a whistleblower. Okay. He is a guy who made a protected disclosure, a protected complaint to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. The Inspector General of Intelligence and Security is within the executive branch of government, so not, it's not genuine oversight, it's not legislative scrutiny, it's not judicial oversight. It's within the executive branch of government, but you're allowed to make a complaint to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. And uh, the IGES at the time told Witness K uh, that you have certain options, and your options include uh, uh, taking private legal advice. Now, ACES is unlike most organizations, but in one respect, it is very much like other organizations. It has industrial disputes. Uh, people who want to get promoted can't get promoted. Uh, people who 
uh, or you know, it has another aspect to it as well. Sometimes people have post-traumatic stress disorder and so uh, they need to see somebody. Well, you can't go and see a normal industrial relations lawyer and you can't go and see a normal psychiatrist. And so there are a couple of people who are, who are nominated by ACES to be the designated uh, uh, listener for ACES officers or ASIO officers or other intelligence officers uh, with um, an industrial relations dispute. And one such person was Bernard Collary. Uh, Bernard Collary is the former uh, Attorney General of the Australian Capital Territory, a uh, successful um, barrister, uh, trial lawyer, um, and um, uh, he was the person that uh, ACES uh, said could be the, the lawyer for any uh, industrial relations dispute. Um, Witness Carey is said to have gone to him and said that uh, he's been uh, uh, terminated as a result of uh, 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 a new culture within, within DFAT, uh, within, within ACES. And so Kaleri said, well, what is this uh, new culture? What do you mean? And he says, well, I was ordered to carry out an operation to bug the government of East Timor. And uh, that uh, made him pause because Bernard Kaleri has some as a background, which ACES is well aware of, I have to say. Uh, Bernard Kaleri, as the former Attorney General of the ACT, uh, is also a long-term uh, supporter of the rights of self-determination of the Timorese. Uh, he is um, a man who was born uh, when his, fa his father was dead when he was born, uh, because he, but he was conceived obviously when his father was alive. His father was shot down uh, over the coast of the Netherlands in a, uh, in a uh, bowfighter, a uh, bomber, uh, during World War II. And he was brought up uh, by uh, uh, you know, his mother and uh, uh, they come from a, a Catholic family. And uh, the case of Timor was well known to them. Um, and when Gareth Evans ordered that uh, crosses be removed from the, uh, the lawn outside the Indonesian embassy after the Delhi massacre, the Santa Cruz massacre of 12th November 1991, Bernard Collary as the Attorney General of the ACT began to take legal action to stop Gareth Evans. Um, and so he's known, it's not a secret, he's known as a supporter of the Timorese. Uh, what most people don't know is how close he actually is to the Timorese. Okay, but ACES knows, of course. Uh, and so Bernard happened to be in a position where uh, he uh, you know, had this conflict, uh, this, this moral conflict, what am I going to do? Uh, so he decided to stop speaking to Witness K and decided to conduct uh, his own legal analysis with external advice to work out you know, the legality of what actually has occurred. So here's where the, what the problem is. The, uh, the Intelligence Services Act 2001 defines uh, the role of ACES. Okay, so ACES can only be used for its proper role. And that is uh, for the defense, um, national security, uh, and economic well-being of Australia. Okay. And so at what point does the economic well-being of Australia morph into the economic well-being of a company and morph into the economic well-being of the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, and the economic well-being of the, uh, the Foreign Minister, uh, who is up to uh, 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 you know, all kinds of maneuvers. Uh, but then uh, there were other, other aspects as well as part of the legal advice that he got. Uh, here I'm simply saying what he says his legal advice was. I'm not making any legal claims of my own. Uh, and that is that there was a conspiracy to defraud uh, a joint venture partner. It's not like your. It's not as though economic well-being can never be used. It's not as though ACES can never be used for economic purposes. Uh, but then, in certain cases, when uh, Timor and Australia meet as joint venture partners uh, under the uh, terms of the Timor Sea Treaty, uh, it becomes uh, 
uh, a crime to, def to defraud your joint venture partner. Uh, it's actually covered in the ACT criminal code, which is where the operation was planned and ordered. So section 334 of the criminal code of the, of the Australian Capital Territory uh, makes conspiracy to defraud uh, a crime, uh, but it's also a common law crime, of conspiracy. Um, and eventually, uh, Bernard tried to, uh, uh, tried to uh, uh, set up a, a meeting between the Timorese side um, and the Australian side to see if some private matters could be, private arrangements could be made which would not embarrass the Australian government at all. Um, and it was completely rebuffed uh, based on information that has since uh, become public and I don't assert uh, the truth of it, I simply report it. Um, the then Prime Minister of Timor, Shanana Guzmao, wrote a letter hand-delivered by the Foreign Minister of Timor to the Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, saying, we know this, we know what uh, your, your predecessors have done, we don't think you've done it, uh, and we want to reach an arrangement with you that protects our, our rights and your privacy. Uh, uh, he was immediately rebuffed, um, and uh, as a result of which, uh, Timor then began private arbitration uh, under, uh, at the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. It was all private, nobody knew about it. Uh, but uh, what actually happened after that was that the Australian government itself issued a press release saying that Timor has taken us to the private Permanent Court of Arbitration at The Hague for arbitration. They say that we've been uh, conducting espionage against them and uh, we, we neither confirm nor deny any intelligence allegations, but we've conducted ourselves in good faith at all times. Okay, so the cover was not blown by Witness K, the cover was not blown by, by Bernard Collary, the cover was not blown, uh, blown by Shalana Guzmao, it was blown by the Australian government itself in a press release. Um, uh, after that, uh, the next event was September 2013, uh, when the government changed, and uh, Senator George Brandis became Attorney General, and um, uh, Julie Bishop became foreign minister um, and um, Bernard Collary's house was raided, uh, the house of uh, Witness K was raided, his passport was confiscated, still hasn't gotten it back uh, and George Brandis uh, warned from the floor of the Senate uh, that uh, prosecutions could uh, be launched. Um, now five years, nothing happened for five years and then, and then um, Timor and Australia finally signed uh, a treaty uh, and the treaty uh, did recognize a median line, uh, but it provided for no compensation for past exploitation. So about uh, $5 billion worth of revenue has come out of uh, uh, certain oil fields called Labanaria Coralina. Um, the total aid that Australia has given to Timor is about a billion. Uh, so this makes uh, East Timor Australia's largest donor. And I say in the book that this is not a typo. Okay, so East Timor is Australia's largest donor. Um, but the treaty provides for no compensation for past exploitation. Um, and soon after the treaty was signed, um, it was set, of course, to the Senate Committee for Inquiry. Uh, it received, I'm not making this up, it received 45 minutes of consideration, uh, and then it was stamped. And then uh, uh, Bernard Gullary and Witness Kay received uh, notifications that they're gonna be charged okay, with uh, re releasing information about ACES. Uh, that's an offence under the Crimes Act and under the Intelligence Services Act and the Crimes Act says how, how long you're going to get. So at the moment, uh, that thing would be 10 years in prison, but uh, because the alleged crime uh, is said to have occurred before the penalties were increased, um, it's a two-year sentence maximum. Okay. Uh, now, 
I just want to tie this up finally with the whole terrorism business where I started this talk. Um, as I said, in September 2004, there was this car bomb, um, and um, uh, the, uh, the then Attorney General, uh, Philip Ruddock, uh, introduced into the Senate, into, into the Parliament, uh, lower house, uh, the National Security Information Act. And the National Security Information Act said that once a certification has been, has been issued by the Attorney General, it'll have to be considered by the court and given special weight, not equal weight, special weight over the interests of public, public trials. Uh, and if the court so decides, then the entire case is going to be heard in secret. And it's very interesting to see how Philip Ruddock introduced the National Security Information Act, uh, the bill, into Parliament. Uh, the third sentence of his speech quoted from the Director General of ASIO at the time, Dennis Richardson, saying there's a lot of terrorists, Islamic terror, and one of these days uh, we're going to need this provision uh, in order to protect uh, us from terrorists. Okay? And yet, and yes, that act has in fact been used in terror trials. Uh, there have been 46 uh, uh, people who've been tried, uh, almost all male, all Muslim. Um, uh, and now Witness K and Bernard Canary are now subject to the same National Security Information Act. So where are we at now? Based at least on the best information I have, um, um, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions has issued uh, a, a request to the Attorney General, Christian Porter, for him to issue a, 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 a non-disclosure certificate under the National Security Information Act. Uh, if, or more, more plausibly, when uh, he issues that. Uh, it'll be considered by the magistrate's uh, court in the ACT, uh, and the ACT magistrate's court under the Act cannot give equal weight uh, to the certificate and the need for public confidence in a fair and open trial. In an open trial, not fair, an open trial. You have to give special weight to the Attorney General's uh, certificate. Um, so it's expected that uh, sometime this month um, there will be uh, closed court hearings uh, to work out uh, how to enforce that uh, non-disclosure certificate and there will also be um, um, uh, procedures for how the actual trial will be heard. Uh, now it's possible to have a trial for the f in a, a public trial and also protect the interests of secrecy. Okay, so what's the key secrecy that needs to be protected in terms of disclosure? Um, it's the identity of Witness K, okay, because Witness K is a former spy. Uh, he has not only been head of all technical operations, but he has actually been a spy, which, is, which means probably an undercover or non-official non cover person who has, say, been under, uh, operating under a fictitious uh, profession, identity, and so on. Um, and so if a foreign government or governments were to find out Witness K's identity, they would know who in their countries uh, he was particularly close to or had regular meetings with. And they would then be able to work out, well, who are our traitors, uh, and then knock him off. And that would reduce ACES's credibility uh, indefinitely. Okay? So you'd want to hide Witness, K, Witness K's identity. But beyond that, there is no national security information that needs to be, except for one very important thing that to launch the case, the Australian government's going to have to admit that it did in fact bug Timor. Because otherwise, there's no way for it to actually convict 
uh, Kolarian K. It has to admit, yes, we bug Timo, and they disclose that. Okay. So uh, that's the other national security information that has to be protected. But in this case, it's hard to see how there's a public benefit to protect that information. So how would witness case identity be protected if uh, the court were to so decide? Uh, one way is simply, um, um, well, there's been a, a very important uh, uh, coronal inquest into, the, into an aircraft crash involving the deaths of some special forces operators in the United Kingdom. And uh, there was an Australian airman called Paul Pardole who, was, uh, who died in that, uh, in, that in that crash. As it happened, Bernard Caleri was one of the lawyers in that uh, coronal inquest in the United Kingdom. And so all the special forces opera operatives, they testified from behind the screen and their identities were protected. So it would be very simple in the ACT Magistrates Court who witnessed Kay to enter through a different entrance and testify from behind the screen. Uh, but it remains to be seen if that is in fact what uh, um, the Chief Magistrate of the ACT, Lorraine Walker, actually does. Okay, so where we're at now is um, sometime this month, uh, there'll be a preliminary hearing, which will go on for a while, to work out how the trial will happen. Then there will be a trial, uh, which will, well, could be held completely in secret, uh, followed by a conviction. Okay. That's it. Uh, any questions? Yep. Uh,